Hello, you're listening to Exocast, the podcast that takes you far beyond our solar system to explore distant extrasolar worlds. As always, we have an exciting show for you this month. Myself and Andrew report from the recent UK Exoplanet Community Meeting in St Andrews. And Hannah's going to cover all of the Exoplanet news from the last month from the news desk. But first, let's meet our Exocasters. So introducing the show this month is Hugh Osborne, who hunts for transiting exoplanets from the University of Warwick in the UK. Andrew Rushby studies planetary habitability and the early climate of the Earth at NASA Ames in California. And Hannah Wakeford studies clouds and atmospheres of exoplanets from NASA Goddard in Washington, D.C. So this month, Andrew and Hugh attended the UK Exoplanet Meeting, so UK Exo 17, and uh, are reporting from the field. So what happened? What was the, the meeting about? Give us a brief introduction to it, and uh, it would be good to hear what the highlights were. Will do. Um, so this month, myself, Hugh, had the pleasure of taking taking Exocast on the road uh, to hear directly from scientists working in the field of exoplanet discovery and characterization, mainly based in the UK. Uh, and of course, I mean, apart from the three of us who you guys hear from most most months, so it's probably losing a little bit of its novelty. Um, nevertheless, uh, the UK Exoplanet Community Meeting was held at the lovely University of St Andrews from the 15th to the 17th of March. Um, this is the, I believe, the fourth instalment of this uh, annual meeting. Uh, the first one was in Cambridge back in 2014. The second one was in Hughes local neighbourhood, Warwick, uh, in 2015. And the third one last year in Exeter, Hannah's Old Haunt. So it's by no means a big conference. Um, you know, I've been to some, some pretty enormous planetary science conferences with thousands of attendees. Um, but the the numbers that were provided by the conference organizers suggest that the participation is continued to rise each year. So I think it's up to 155 participants um, from the local UK exoplanet community, uh, which I think is pretty great. Actually, it's a good, a good number for a, a conference, a good size. Um, so it's three days, a three day event comprised of six uh, main sessions. And then there were eight discussion sessions as well, uh, which I think gave 44, 45 speakers in total. So you had a good opportunity to, hear from a diverse range of, uh, of people working primarily in astrophysics and exoplanet discovery and characterization. So personally, I always enjoy discussion sessions. Uh, I attended one on uh, the open questions in exoplanet modeling, which primarily relate to atmospheric stuff. How do we, how do, we do clouds in GCMs? Um, that's been a problem in, uh, in certainly in earth science and computing habitable zone stuff for some time. So that was quite an interesting discussion. Um, that we actually had to cut short in the end. Uh, and there was another really interesting one the next day on uh, the lessons we can take from Earth uh, in our search for habitable worlds. But there were six others that I didn't attend, so maybe Hugh can report on uh, the ones he went to if he if he gets a chance. Yeah, I went to a couple of interesting discussion sessions, actually. I went to one on um, basically how stars can ruin our, our attempts to try and find planets because they're noisy themselves, so uh, about how to how we can remove star spots and, and the variability that stars put onto surveys and, and radial velocity. And uh, another really interesting discussion session actually on what the what the future is going to bring in terms of um, exoplanets and how that's going to affect our knowledge of the formation of planetary systems, which is something we, we don't know too much about. Um, but it was, it was very interesting looking at things like Gaia and, 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 and Plato and, and these direct imaging missions and how they can improve our 
our knowledge in the future about how planetary systems formed. There was a lot of work uh, presented at the conference on planetary formation. It does seem like it's a uh, quite a burgeoning field at the moment, um, with some you know controversial statements as well. It seemed like there was maybe a little bit of disagreement uh, as to um, some of the some of the concepts behind it. But that's why I like those conferences. You know, it's getting to understand where those uh, you know potentially controversial dichotomies lie. Um, I found it very interesting anyway, but my my um, experience of the discussion sessions were ruined slightly by my jet lag, which this trip was awful. So considering they're in like the mid-afternoon, I was somewhat hallucinating throughout them. Um, you know, Ray, Raymond Pierre Humbert, who's, a, who's an excellent and, and very senior and respected scientist, I was sure I saw his beard moving of its own accord occasionally. <laughs> so um, I think maybe I should have taken a nap. Anyway, uh, it wouldn't be a conference in Scotland uh, without a gourmet banquet and a Cayley to follow, uh, which was announced by a bagpiper, who I should also add was uh, an attendee and presenter at the conference, and she did a great job of both presenting and bagpiping. Um, so if, if you're not familiar with the term Cayley, it's a type of uh, Scottish traditional dance that often involves pretty much the whole audience, uh, and it's, it's a load of fun. Um, so given that the, you know, there's a bunch of scientists, the dancing was, as you might expect... You know, the, the heart was there, certainly. Uh, the foundation, probably, maybe not. Um, hey, hey, hey. hey on, myself I, included. I think I'm pretty good. Uh. Myself included. <laughs> I saw you there, Hugh, busting those moves. <laughs> it was great fun. Um, so beyond that, there were also a couple of uh, poster sessions which allowed for socialisation and networking and that, that normal conference stuff. Um, I liked the fact that the posters were left up for the entire meeting. So, you know, they were dotted around the social space. You could uh, take your time over lunch or coffee over the three days and just have a look around. And there was also a poster, a really great one by Hugh as well. So uh, there was just, you know, a lot of interesting science on display. Uh, and we thought that this actually might be a good opportunity for us, uh, myself and Hugh, to get to know the science and the scientists a little better and give them an opportunity to discuss their work in a totally relaxed, really informal environment. So how did we do that here? Yeah, we did. We thought we'd play a bit of an astronomy game uh, that we kind of nicked from the Oxford group called Just an Arc Minute. So this is a, a variant on a channel, uh, Radio 4 game called Just a Minute with a bit of an astronomical twist, as you might imagine. So we basically got researchers to try and explain their research in 60 seconds, but we penalised them for hesitation, repetition or deviation. And also uh, we penalised them for every five seconds over or under the time li limit they were. Uh, so, so we attempted to find who was the, the clearest describer of their science in this way by, by the, the, the person with the fewest... Um, basically penalty points. Uh, so yeah, let's see how people did. So we're here at the UK Exoplanet Meeting in St Andrews, the fourth year it's been running, and we're going to chat to some exoplanet astronomers for you guys and play a little game called Just an Arc Minute. So we'll see what we can find. All right, let's uh, go and uh, ambush some people. I'm Charlotte Norris, and I'm from Imperial College London, working with Yvonne Inru on modelling the spectral contrast of stellar faculae. Um, all right, so you have <laughs> 60 seconds. Let me time it here. Okay, you have 60 seconds to talk about this without repetition, deviation, or the other one. Where's the other one? <laughs> it's just pauses and breaks and stuff. Yeah, but there's, there's like three um, words that are alliterative. I can't remember. Anyway, yeah, we'll, we'll do that later. Okay. okay, here we go. Okay, so I'm working on modeling the spectral contrast of stellar faculae and we're using 3D magneto-convection models um, <laughs> in order to... 
Uh, in order to create 3D models of facula on different spectral types. So they need to be modeled in 3D because they are 3D phenomena. They change across from the center of the star to the limb. And as you include them in exoplanet models, this needs to be taken into account. Uh, at the moment, the, the exoplanet community tend to use solar models uh, and scale those to the effective temperature of other spectral types. Um, from our models, we can see that this isn't effective. Um, so we're going to use these models in order to improve. <laughs> to improve the facular contrast and therefore include the parameters obtained from transit spectroscopy. My name is George King. Uh, I am a second year PhD student at the University of Warwick working with Peter Wheatley. Okay, uh, fantastic. So you have 60 seconds to explain your research. Go. Okay, so my research focuses on the XUV environments of planetary systems with Exum and Newton. So uh, that means uh, the combination of X-rays and extreme ultraviolet. Uh, you cannot see the latter of those uh, because of the ISM. And that means you have to use uh, the first one to uh, reconstruct that emission. And what we have done is produced some new, rela new relations to uh, be able to do this and work out um, what the irradiation level for some of these planets are, because that is what's thought to be driving mass loss or uh, loads of material being blown off the atmospheres of uh, these planets. Um, that's your minute. That's my minute. That's my, I think I counted nine. Is that right? What did you get? You got nine ums. I got four planets. Cool. My name's Amy Bonsor and I'm a research fellow at the University of Cambridge. Excellent. All right. So you have 60 seconds to talk about your research without, what was it? Repetition, deviation, and hesitation. Okay. Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay. Thank you. Cool. So um, I think about what planets are made of. Um, and if you really want to know what a planet that's thousands of light years away is made of, <laughs> repeated already, planet is good. Um, you could think about its mass and its density, but you only um, you get a very degenerate composition. So instead, you can look at observations of white dwarfs where you have rocky planetary material in the atmosphere of these white dwarfs. And from this, you can determine the exact um, ratios of bulk species, such as magnesium, iron, silicon, and these tell you about what these planetary bodies are made of. <laughs> so, um, I'm using this to think about how planets form and how bodies evolve, <laughs> how differentiation um, is very important for the evolution of the planetary system. So we see evidence for the accretion of fragments of um, bodies that have gone into core material material um, in the atmospheres of the white dwarfs and these tell us about um, the fact that when as planets are forming <laughs> I've said for the 500th time <laughs> already um, these um, as planets are forming the collisions between rocky bodies are leading to fragmentation okay. yeah that's great that was, that was good my name is Amore Trio. I'm a senior researcher at the University of Cambridge. And are you ready to do what, just an arc minute? Uh, I'll try. Okay. All right, so your time 
starts. Oh. Now. My research is about finding planets in systems that are different from the solar system. So for instance, you would think of uh, binary systems. So you have two stars, uh, planets could go around both stars, the planet could go around one of the stars. Alternatively, the star could be very different from the sun, being, for instance, a small star like Trappist-1, around which we found recently seven planets. The idea is to explore how wide the planet population is, how different planets can be in different sort of conditions to learn about planet formation, get the best atmospheric characterization we can get, uh, and everything else. Hi, I'm Laura Rogers, and I'm working at the Institute of Astronomy in Cambridge. Excellent. Okay, so you have 60 seconds to talk about your research without repetition and hesitation, or... I forget what the other one is. Anyway, those three. <laughs> Deviation, yeah. Okay, all right, are you ready? No. Okay, well, <laughs> we're going anyway, so... Okay. Okay, so I am working on infrared variability around dusty white dwarfs. And these stellar remnants have pollutants in their atmospheres from dead planetary systems. And then what you end up seeing is you have dust that is circumstellar to these dead stars. Um, <laughs> and if you can observe changes in the... Have I already said infrared? <laughs> if you observe changes in the infrared, then you can try and work out what those changes are from. And you can work out whether there is stochastic accretion of uh, asteroids. Can't say planetesimals again. Um, <laughs> oh, no, you can't count that. <laughs> so the idea is to um, put constraints on what is going on and why you see these weird stellar remnants with metals in their outer layers. That was excellent. <laughs> that was really good. All right. Hi, I'm Christine. I'm a PhD student from Warwick. Excellent. Okay, and are you ready to describe your research in 60 seconds? Yes, I am. Okay. We start this. Your time starts now. Okay, so my poster is about uh, WASP-12, what we're doing. WASP-12 is a closing exoplanet and it's susceptible uh, to a very high stellar irradiation. And when, when the heat is uh, deposited onto the planet, the atmosphere heats up and at a very high energy, the atmosphere actually escapes into the orbital plane and forms into a cometary-like tail. And this tail would then absorb the light that is coming out from the star uh, in the the Kelsen HNK line profiles. So what we have is a bunch of uh, Sophie spectra and we're trying to look at these spectra at different orbital phases and try to map out the variation at different phases and and, and for a full absorption we can tell um, how dense the uh, cometary tail is at different orbital phases. Cool. So I'm Alexander Mustill, I work in Sweden at Lund Observatory. Okay, and are you ready to, to talk about your research in 60 seconds? Yeah, sure. Okay, let's go. So I study transiting bodies in exoplanetary systems, and in particular the interactions between inner planets in these systems and any outer perturbers that might exist on wider orbits. 
Um, so I look at things like how the more distant uh, objects can destabilize the one's interior to them, uh, how they can excite their mutual inclinations so that you no longer see them pass in front of the star. Um, and what the multiplicities of the resulting uh, sets of 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 bodies uh, are. So that's how many things do you see in these uh, stellar systems? Um, and it's particularly relevant to space-based observatories such as Kepler, Corot. Tess, K2, Plato, Cheops, the Bright Constellation, and other such orbiting telescopes which we put above the Earth's atmosphere so that they can see things more precisely and more accurately and with greater signal to noise. That's really good. Yeah. I think I think I counted ten. List listing is always a good, right? Listing this is this is isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, that, that's a just a minute trick. Hello, I'm David Wilson, I'm a student in the University of Warwick, and I study, am I allowed to say my title in... in yeah, this one counts. Uh, oh, it doesn't count. I study um, the chemical composition of extrasolar planetesimals by measuring debris at white dwarfs. Okay, that's great. And are you ready for 60 seconds of talking about your science? Okay, all right. Your time starts now. We've known for about uh, 10 years that uh, white dwarfs, which are the leftovers of stars like the Sun, are creating uh, planetesimals, the small asteroids, and we can take look at that accretion and measure the composition of the rocky objects that are uh, tiny, uh, and turn that into what learn what the chemistry of these extrasolar systems is in a way we can't do in any other uh, area. So, for example, we can't. Um, measure, me, don't measure. Uh, we can't obtain the chemis the chemicals in the earth. Um, but what I've done is take all of these individual um, observations and turn them into a, a sample from which we can draw general conclusions about what round things in other systems are made of. And now for the results. Actually, I have to say we did get a few more recordings of other people, um, including myself and Andrew, but I deleted that file by accident at some point. I'm not sure when, so that's a bit frustrating. Um, but having done it, I have to say it was, it's a seriously difficult game to do, so um, massive credit to everyone that took part. Um, so the results were in 7th place with 25 was Amy Bonser, including 3 for a time penalty. In sixth, with um, 18 points, was Amory Trio, and five of those were time penalties, so 13 points in, in 35 seconds. Uh, he said the word planet about 10 times, so that's quite impressive. Um, Christine Lamb was next with 17 points, and with 14 points in fourth place were Charlotte Norris and Alex Mustel. Um, George King came in in third with 13. David Wilson came in second with 11 points and the winner with 10 points was Laura Rogers from Cambridge. So that was yeah, seriously impressive 60 seconds of, of science communication there. So, uh, Fortunately we don't have any prizes but um, congratulations to Laura Rogers for winning that. So it sounds like fun. Was it, compared to the other meetings, what, um, would you say that there was um, kind of a bat, the balance was good? 
No, I I was I, I mean it's my own fault because I mean I didn't like submit a talk or anything, but it, it was like a day and a half of atmospheres, and then maybe a session of detection, and then another day split between formation and, uh, like, solar system comparisons sort of stuff which i found really interesting actually i think the final day was good but the the atmosphere stuff was a bit dry for me which is sorry to say hannah i wasn't there i'm not insulted at all (laughs) yeah i mean i was by by far the standout weird person in my session um i you know there wasn't a huge amount about planetary slash earth science um i mean there were attendees who had that background certainly um ray pimhanber was there like i mentioned and he does a lot of climate stuff um as well as some other folks that i managed to catch um but overall it was it was astrophysics heavy which is obviously what an exoplanet astrophysics meeting should be um but nevertheless i still i still enjoyed it so a great community of people in the uk really kind of pushing the efforts of exoplanets um yeah there was quite a few international uh both people giving talks and also just people there to to participate as well there was a few from geneva and obviously a lot of americans came back to try and either get postdocs over here or or to you know get a free holiday back home <laughs> like me <laughs> <laughs> um so yeah no it seems to be getting more international which is a good thing i think good to integrate the uk community with with europe and the states certainly and i agree with that but also i think one of the unique things about the uk exoplanet meeting is that it is very relaxed um very colloquial uh, everybody knows each other but also it's small enough that you can talk to everybody in the week and you don't miss people if you wanted to speak with somebody whereas i think if you get over the 150 kind of standard limit you you pass the point where that becomes something that is useful on that social level and i think that the the social aspect of conferences is really important and i always did like that about the uk exoplanet meetings is that you got to talk to everybody so it to some extent i really like the fact that it's got it allows this international participation because that's really important to uk science but at the same time i think the numbers need to be kept small enough that you can have that relaxed and more um more social conversation about the science because I, I feel like we we get really nice in-depth conversations about the science in a relaxed atmosphere and I think some conferences where they're much bigger you lose that so yeah definitely I agree, I agree with that I mean it's trying to be a community meeting um, so I think it, it still has that feel you know it still has that just get together and, and chat rather than you know sit in a room for a week and hear it here um hear lectures and that's it so yeah no it's it's a good it's a good little conference we have it's in oxford next year if you want to go as well yes i was i was just about to mention yeah it's been organized for oxford next year and it it also struck me that's quite young it seems quite a young conference in terms of um you know phd students postdocs early postdocs um would be the the main cohort i think i saw some slides up on the end uh, on the last day about the the gender balance as well um so with about 30 percent of the attendees being female about 30 percent of the um speakers were also female so they had the the gender balance correct in that sense it should obviously be 50 50 um which is something that i think as a community we could always work work towards um yeah i very much appreciated that when i, I was following along on twitter so it was a, it's another good conference where you have enough people that are tweeting the conference itself 
and uh, they actually showed those statistics and I like that the summary did include something that isn't really important is in inclusivity to a community if you are a community you should represent the, gi the, the general population as well so as a community I think definitely uh, pushing towards that and I, I think that's that's a noble effort uh, and now we'll uh, we'll move over to the Exocast news desk for this month's news with Hannah. Thank you. Well, we've had some uh, slow news cycle for for this month. Uh, if I'm missing anything, then please just tweet us uh, at exo underscore cast, and we'll cover things in our news segment so that everybody is really covered for what we've got. But there's been a number of different discoveries again this month that have been published. So we've got a couple of hot Jupiters that have come out, a nice inflated Neptune from the Ogle survey, which traditionally looks for gravitationally lensed planets. But every now and again, it seems to spit out a good transiting planet as well, which is interesting. Um, and Harps has discovered a dozen planets around M stars. So the M stars are really kind of kicking their way through to the planet detection surveys. We're going redder. We're going redder and fainter and getting these very common M stars, which are very nearby to us. So hopefully uh, lots of small planets. And a, a number of stuff that has come out from uh, the K2 and the Kepler surveys, being that M stars likely have a much higher proportion of small rocky planets around them. So evidence is pushing that way and observations are pushing that as well, that way as well. So. Uh, we're going to be hearing about them a lot in the future. But then a couple, just to continue that, in TRAPPIST news, so last month we covered the discovery of the seven Earth-sized planets around TRAPPIST-1, and a continuation of that is the K2 mission campaign 12, which started its observations in December of 2016 and ended in March this year. So it ended this month, actually. And... TRAPPIST uh, was in the field of view for this campaign. So they had 79 continuous days of Kepler monitoring of the TRAPPIST-1 star and the system of planets around it. So very quickly and surprisingly quickly, I believe it was 60 hours after the campaign 12 data became available, there was a paper up on archive which has been submitted uh, with the results of this analysis. So. From Campaign 12 and the NASA K2 uh, survey, they have now confirmed the orbital period of the seventh planet in the TRAPPIST-1 system, TRAPPIST-1H, to be, I believe it was 18.8 days. 18.76 days. So, 18.8 days. So this was the... Um, Measurement that was suggested by the Spitzer data where they had a single transit of this planet based on the orbital dynamics that we would expect for this system. But this new kind of survey of data, they found three additional transits of TRAPPIST-1H and that really has just confirmed that orbital period and brought the uncertainty down considerably. Uh, another thing that was able to be um, reduced in terms of the uncertainty is the radius of this planet. So because it's transiting, we're getting the radius relative to the star. But the radius of this planet, uh, given a known size of the star, is 0.7 times the size of the Earth. So it's, it's smaller than our planet. Um, and at a temperature of its distance from the star and the host star temperature, you can work out what the equilibrium of the planet would be if you make some assumptions about what it might be, what the environment might be like. And this places it in the 1,000... Uh, sorry, 
I'm thinking of hot Jupiters, 170 Kelvin. So it's beyond the snow line. So it's likely frozen um, material for this, what is likely a rocky planet at that radius. So we've got a nice ice ball there to study, which will be really interesting because we don't have anything like that in our solar system apart from the moons of the outer planets. So this is going to be a really interesting planet to do some follow-up observations of. Um, and then in addition to that, they, they also detected a number of flares, which um, gives us a little bit more information about the star. So now, from this activity that we're able to record over the 1,000 hours of Spitzer, and in the, which is in the infrared, and then in the optical with Kepler, you can look at those activity cycles, uh, and you can see that actually the star itself is older than was first predicted. So it's, it's likely a middle-aged M-dwarf which is good if you think about Darwinian-style evolution. That gives it more time, essentially. So the older it is, in this case, uh, the better. So M-dwarfs actually outlast, as we've discussed before, outlast stars like our sun. So this is a, it's a good age for a planetary system. And that kind of leads me to the second paper that I saw, which I thought was really interesting. And I thought that Andrew might be able to comment on a little bit is the enhanced interplanetary panspermia concept between these planets. So from our solar system, we know that there is what is called mass transfer between our terrestrial planets. We have meteorites from Mars on the Earth. Now, we only recently uh, discovered that they are from Mars because we went to Mars and we measured what the rocks were like and then we went, hang on, we've got some of those here. Um, so we know that we're getting mass transfer from Mars. and you know, potentially that means vice versa. There is Earth rocks on Mars somewhere. Uh, and we don't know, but there is also then therefore a likelihood that we're getting Venus rocks. We just don't have anything to compare it to to know that they are actually Venusian uh, in nature. But because these planets are so close together, so they're so tightly packed in the system, there is an enhanced kind of probability that there is this kind of mass transfer that we get in our solar system between all of these planets. Now that is kind of leads to this interesting concept where we want to talk about the distinction between early life conditions and late life conditions of a planet. So if you need a single planet to evolve life, that requires early life conditions. And then if a, another planet only becomes that kind of uh, habitable region or nature later on in the lifetime, this enhanced interplay of the mass between these planets may allow life to evolve on another planet where it first couldn't evolve on its own. So there's a huge number of assumptions and probabilities and uncertainties involved with this but it's a really interesting system for that because they are so close together they are very similar in size and the temperature differences and the number of planets that we see in this uh, liquid water zone this equilibrium liquid water zone really could uh, allow life to to spawn i suppose on multiple worlds in different places and conditions which is I think fascinating. I don't know if Andrew, if you had anything to. <laughs> yeah, actually, I um, I don't know if our listeners will recall, but when we first talked about Trappist, we discussed very briefly this this idea of interplanetary transfer. And I think I did some very simple back of the envelope calculations, worked out that 
the transfer, instead of being, for example, hundreds of thousands of years between Mars and the Earth, might occur on timescales of, you know, maybe a thousand years uh, in the in the Trappist system. When you have all of those planets crammed in to, you know, well within the orbit of Mercury, uh, those, those timescales are really very small. Um, some of the, the modeling work that's been done in, in this kind of idea of, of interplanetary transfer of life, often the, the fall down issue is getting those organisms to survive long enough in the interplanetary vacuum. Uh, and I mean, they do. Uh, it's possible if they bury deep enough within the regolith and they survive being ejected out. I mean, there's so many assumptions that go into this, as you mentioned, Hannah. But um, some of the, the, the largest unknowns are how those organisms would then survive the trip. Uh, and there are experiments that are being done on this at the moment, for example, up on the ISS that, that look at how organisms deal with that vacuum. Um, but I think when you're reducing the amount of time that they're in space to you know, 10 to the 3, 10 to the 4 years instead of 10 to the 6 to 10 to the 9, then I think it, it, it certainly um, makes that step a lot easier. Uh, I like the paper. Um, I, it's one of those papers that I kind of wish I'd I'd written. You know, there's loads of them. There's loads of them like that, and I certainly was thinking about it. But the way they did it was it was a good model. It was relatively simple. They assumed that you know essentially that material would be ejected in all directions equally, and some proportion of that would then land on the other planets. Um, it's probably a little bit more complicated, of course, as as most of these things are. Um, but in terms of computing times and the amount of material transferred, it's it's significant. So. These planets are going to be very similar in terms of the life they host, if they host life at all. Uh, it obviously doesn't it doesn't solve the problem of, of how that life came to be or where it came from initially, um, but that's always been a problem with panspermia. That's true, yeah. So in other random news, uh, outside of the Trappist system, outside of planet discoveries, so last week, uh, from the 20th to the 25th, was Cloud Week, and it was also the uh, World Met Day. So these are celebrating clouds that we have here on our planet. And as we know, I love clouds. Um, and as does, Yay clouds. Yay clouds. And Britain loves clouds as well. The Met Office was celebrating Cloud Week uh, all week. And actually the classification of some new clouds in the International Cloud Index. So there's an International Cloud Atlas. So um, the movie didn't come out of nowhere. And in that International Cloud Atlas, every different type of cloud that we have here on our fine planet has a different name depending on its structure, its position in our atmosphere, when and how it appears. And there were a few new clouds that were added to that cloud atlas uh, last week. And one of these is a really interesting, and I'm going to say this horribly wrong, Aspertius cloud, which is a rolling cloud across the sky. And you'll see it if you... Um, uh, as bobbles essentially so if you've ever seen the top of one of those really bobbly mattresses mattress toppers it looks like that so like foam packaging um, these clouds are amazing in images because of the contrast that you can see and they actually normally form over planes so they're um, rolling clouds so they roll across the sky over flat landscapes so there's very few places in the UK that will form them that well but Dorset is probably one of your best shots at getting a great uh, image of these types of clouds. Um, and another type of cloud that was um, defined in the cloud atlas was the Murus cloud, M-U-R-U-S. And that's a wall cloud. So that forms at the edge of two system fronts where you get this very, very long, often kilometer plus length cloud, which goes in a line or a wall across the whole sky. Um, and those will often form in 
places where you get a lot of warm air coming up from the ground. So cities are good at forming these kinds of wall clouds because cities generally generate a lot of heat coming from the ground upwards. And that will cause these kind of um, pressure fronts and temperature pressure fronts in the air. And you get this big wall of cloud where one side of that wall will be nice and cloudy sky and the other side will be a relatively thin or cloudless sky. So those two new uh, clouds have been added to the Cloud Atlas uh, and those were announced on the World Met Day, which is from the uh, World Meteorological Observatory. So that is our whole planet. That's not just the UK's Met Office. That is the one that monitors, monitors all of our clouds and our skies across this planet. So loads of really interesting data that was coming out um, and following a number of storms as it's storm season uh, across the Central America at the moment. So lots of really cool and fun things. I love clouds, I think. So as someone who loves clouds and someone who loves hot Jupiters, can can you imagine that these clouds and their topographies would be, there'd be analogous cloud cloud systems and cloud types on enormous massive hot Jupiters? So the hot Jupiters are really dominated by their orbital periods so their rotation and orbital period are equal so it really depends on what we're seeing there those really dominate the kind of wind structures you would get so for the closer in ones uh, you would expect much larger bands where it'd be mostly equatorial that stretches almost all all the way up to the pole as a single band of cloud or 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 wind that would stretch all the way around the planet. Now, the temperature differences between the day side and the night side also probably introduce this kind of patchy network of, of clouds, depending on how that heat is being transported. So in all honesty, we're not 100% certain on what the clouds might look like in terms of their formation. The extent that they will cover um, can be approximated. So normally on the Earth, they, they cover um, roughly one scale height so for the earth that's roughly eight kilometers now for a hot jupiter that can be anywhere between 200 to 2000 kilometers so these are either really really extended clouds or they can be really compressed clouds so it depends on on the type of material that they're formed out of as to how much they scatter light so earth clouds water clouds scatter light in every direction which is why they're white um, whereas some of these clouds that we're seeing on these hotter planets will only scatter certain wavelengths of light so there'll be a different color to what we see here so there's a lot we don't know but then again there's a lot we don't know about earth clouds so. true and eventually when we can characterize those hot jupiter clouds there'll be many more to add to the the cloud atlas oh certainly yes they're gonna have they're gonna have a whole offshoot of that cloud atlas we'll have a cloud tree or something we're gonna have to make it 3d What's a 3D atlas? A globe? No, nope, it's not going to work. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then finally, uh, moving through our mass range, I also wanted to talk about um, some results that came out looking at the most massive brown dwarf that's been discovered. Now, brown dwarfs are the intermediate between planets and stars. And what I found really interesting is that this brown dwarf is even heavier than should it should be, considering um, the point in which they should start burning, becoming a star, essentially. Um, and that's because it's got a really low metallicity, so there's, it's very pure. It's mostly hydrogen and helium. So that even though it's really, really massive, 
there's not much enough material to really compress down the core. So it's really kind of inflated and bloated. So there's this bloated little star that's floating out there that hasn't quite made it to being a star, even though it's got enough mass. And I found that really, really interesting because that kind of brings us into the the point of metallicity. And that is the amount of material or metals or heavier elements that you have. And these heavier elements can have a huge impact on planets. Uh, and we see that in this cloud formation, like we were saying, the higher the metallicity, the, the more amount of metals or heavy elements you have, then the thicker those clouds can be made because there's more material to make them. So oxygen is a metal, according to astronomers. Anything other than hydrogen and helium is a, is a metal. <laughs> Super confusing, guys, by the yeah, way. Just sorry, to let you know. just to screw everything up. So... We, the more of that material that you have, the, the more you can make other things from it. So because this brown dwarf doesn't have any of this other material, it's not compressing the core enough to fuse the hydrogen into helium. And that, you know, if we see uh, planets that are incredibly bloated, that's interesting because it might actually suggest that there are less metals than we would expect. So I'm, I'm wondering if there is a link at all that we can make between anything uh, to do with the metallicity of these planets. So I think that brown dwarfs are a great entrance to that kind of study. Uh, and that's something that I, I intend on expanding on next week as well. So hopefully some more news in that direction. But that's all I had for this month. Um, if you have any suggestions for news that you want covered throughout our exocasts, then please just let us know and we will make sure to include that in our new segments. But I believe it's actually time in our exocast to adopt a nice new planet into our family. And this month it is Hugh's choice. What have you picked? Yeah, that's right. So... Um... I went for something easy. I went for Kepler 47 ABC, which is of course easy as ABC, right? Um, so the reason the reason it has three letters after it rather than just the usual one is because Kepler 47 ABC is a circumbinary world. So the A and the B in its name refer to two stars. So these are capitalized for that for that reason. And then the C refers to the planet. So actually, this this is the um, the third planet out from or the second planet out sorry from uh kepler 47 ab so so the most famous circumbinary that you might have heard of is, is a fictional one so it's, it's tatooine so like that world the daylight sky above kepler 47 c would also host two suns in it so one bright sun-like star uh sort of uh, slightly smaller than the sun and also a fainter red dwarf so only about one percent as bright as the sun and these would be seen to circle in the sky. So every seven or so days, there'd even be eclipses thrown across the um, the the planets in this system of up to sort of twenty percent as one star crosses in front of the other star. So this would be quite quite an interesting system to be on. And actually, I wonder if 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 um, if had humanity grown up on on a similar world, whether geocentrism, where we thought that the Earth was the center of the universe, would have ever been considered, right? Because you got this clear, obvious. Um, every seven days there's this 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 clear sign that you are not the center of the universe that there are other um, bodies in the sky order orbiting each other so it'd be quite cool to, to live on one of these planets certainly i don't know Hugh. i think you're underestimating how much humans think of themselves <laughs> <laughs> we'd find a way we'd find a way to make it about us definitely that's true 
Um, so I've mentioned C, but there are also a B in this system, which is on a 50-day orbit, and a D, so on a 187-day orbit. Uh, C is on a 305-day period, so um, it's actually in a sort of Earth-like period around uh, this, 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 these two stars at 0.99 AU as well. So it's likely a sort of temperate Neptune, and it's in the habitable zone, so any moons around this, this Neptune-sized planet could indeed be habitable. Um, and actually, the fact that there is a multi-planet system is quite interesting because there's only two multi-planet systems around binaries in this sort of configuration that we've we've ever found, and it's the only one that we've know of with three planets. And actually, that that its discovery in 2009 by the uh, or 2012 by the Kepler Space Telescope proved that multi-planet systems around binaries are indeed stable and don't, as some had suggested, collide together or get flung out of their own solar system. Um, so we also think that planet C might be on an, a, a slightly eccentric orbit, which would, combined with all the strange effects that you might get from the two stars orbiting each other, cause some seriously bizarre climates on this planet. So there might be times when it's close into, closer into its parent two stars and the two stars are eclipsing and it might be in an orbit such that it's... Um, or in, in, in a rotation such that it's... it's um, like Mercury it is, it might be in a sort of 3 to 2 resonance with its orbit, and this could cause some strange climate effects. So, so one side might become super cold for a long time. And in fact, I, I, I seem to remember reading a paper about how uh, the Game of Thrones world has such a chaotic climate that it must be around a binary system. So you could get extremely long winters followed by extremely long summers on, on such a planet. Um, so... This, this planet was discovered through its transits with the Kepler Space Telescope, as I said. Uh, but actually, it's, it's kind of m much more difficult to discover these transiting planets around two eclipsing stars, as you might imagine. So, so the transit shapes and the times vary hugely depending on where the primary star is when, this, when the, the transit moves in front of it. And also, combined with the large light differences as the two stars in the middle eclipse each other, it just becomes a bit of a nightmare in, in trying to find these systems. So that's why we haven't really found so many circumbinary systems like this. But we do think they, that the planets around them are reasonably common, if not more common, than, um, than single stars. Um, so we've had a bunch of extremes added to our, our adopted world list, but I thought I'd throw this new type of extremity into the bunch. And in fact, if you're interested in in circumbinary worlds and other types of planets in binary systems, then I'll, I'm going to talk a bit more about that, that next month in the next Exocast episode. So stick around for that. Just to preempt that a little bit, I was wondering, so we know that binaries are incredibly common. In fact, they're, they're more common than single stars. Is this type of binary where you have one large star and one small star the most common type or, or, or is there not great statistics on which types of binaries are the most common? Um, I don't know really. So I think there's, I think there's, uh, it's actually not quite true. I think that most stars are in binary systems, but most star systems are single. Which kind of doesn't make sense, but um, if you imagine a binary system contains two stars, yeah. so something like 60% of all stars are in binary systems, but if you look at, at systems, then there's 40% that aren't in binary systems, and only 30% of these systems have two stars, right? So so if you look at only stellar systems, then then there's more single single star systems than there are double star systems. Okay. So it's uh, quite a confusing thing that to get your head around. Confusing. But, um, yes. <laughs> 
You're going to have to explain that one next week a bit more, I think. Yeah, um, I think I will, yeah. Next month. Thank you for joining us for another instalment of Exocast. Next time, as he mentioned, he will cover more of the ins and outs of planets around binary stars. And as she mentioned, Hannah will talk about brown dwarfs. I will don my snazzier suit to report from our international news desk on the month's exoplanetary news. So thank you very much for listening. For more Exocast, you can check out all our previous shows on our website, exocast.org, and on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter and like us on Facebook. Until next time, bye. See you next month. Bye. Exocast.